there's ever been a time in our nation's history where we needed to rise as God's people, gather together and pray for this great nation, it certainly uh, would be today. A call to prayer is my hope that we answer that. Now, some of you might say, what do you mean if ever before in our history's nation? So I'm, well, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, 51 years old, so I want to share with you just from my perspective what I've observed uh, about our nation and even uh, some of the health of the church that I observed over these years. So I grew up in a day when prayer was allowed in school and drugs were something that was prescribed by a medical doctor and picked up at a local drugstore to be used for medicinal purposes only. Men were men and they married women. Women were women and they married men. Cohabitation was socially unacceptable and homosexuality was a sin. Drunkenness was not called a disease, it was simply disobedient to God's word. Pornography was not easily accessible, nor was it morally acceptable in any form or fashion. Abortion was considered murder, and abstinence was the popular choice for birth control and for pleasing God. Good manners were commonplace, and respect was ubiquitous. We did not lock the doors to our homes, nor the doors to our automobiles. We skillfully wrote letters, patiently shared a party line. Well, those of you that grew up with a party line know that we didn't always patiently share it. My grandmother was on mine, and that wasn't always patient. Nevertheless, we shared a party line with our neighbors and gladly played outside most of the time. Kneeling was done in the church when we prayed, and standing for the flag was normal when the national anthem was played. Church attendance was considered obedient to God, not legalism, and there were no kids' sports on Sundays. The Eastern religions were actually still in the East. In God We Trust was more than a catchphrase on our paper currency. It was the conviction of most of the culture. This was America. However, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that the tide has shifted. America now looks much more like Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, prayer in our schools has been replaced with drugs, dissension, danger, and despair. It's hard to distinguish between a man and a woman, and homosexuality is not simply accepted, it is also celebrated. Pornography can be easily assessed, accessed even by children. Cohabitation is the norm for many, while marriage for others is considered a thing of the past. Those who drink too much are said to have a disease, and those who do not drink at all are considered old-fashioned. Respect in any form is hard to find. Today, people kneel during the national anthem and regularly disrespect, disrespect the flag as social unrest and violence continue. Lascivious living is rampant. Churches are losing members daily. Sunday sports have taken the place of consistent church involvement. 
Christians are more interested in debates rather than discipleship. Politics has often replaced theology, and the ministry of reconciliation has taken a backseat to the ministry of vaccination because more church members are concerned about COVID than Christ. Friends, if there has ever been a time in the history of this great country that we should be called to prayer, it is today. If we do not do something, I heard a preacher say not long ago that our country will very likely be buried in the graveyard of the nations with those no longer exist. And the Bible addresses this issue. The Bible speaks not only to culture, but specifically to the church, speaks to God's people. Now, I know when I read through this, it gave a picture of America as a whole. Some might question, has the church lost her influence, or is the church still thriving? George Barn, in his book, Growing True Disciple, writes, believers are largely indistinguishable from non-believers in how they think and how they live. If you're unfamiliar with Barna, his group does research and they do statistics where they'll ask questions and ask questions and ask questions and compile research. And based on their research, it appears that those of us who claim to be a part of the church don't, at least generally speaking, don't look much different than those who are outside of the church. Vance Havner was a treasured and cherished revivalist in the 20th century. And he was known for saying that most church members live so far below the standard you would have to backslide to be in fellowship with them. Not only is our country in dire straits, but the church, according to statisticians, is losing her influence. So much so that for the first time in the history of this country, since his birth in 1776, we now live in what is referred to as a post-Christian America. The church, by and large, has lost her voice. If we are to regain it, we must be called back to prayer. Look in your Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Here's how it reads. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Pray with me a moment before we make some observations. Father, thank you for this great country. More than that, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word was good for those that came before us, and it's right for us even today. I pray that you would use this passage to call us to be people of prayer and reposition us as a nation of faith that we once were, that the church might have the impact that we once had. God, please begin even today in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it begins out saying, if my people. 
There are those that would say that this verse was specifically for Israel and that it doesn't apply to nations that have come after Israel. Please understand this. This was a verse that was written thousands of years ago to Israel, about Israel. If you look at it where it was packed in Scripture, Solomon had just dedicated the temple And God was dealing with some of the immorality of Israel, and he gives this verse, speaks to those people in that day. However, as we look at the whole of Scripture, we learn that Israel is also an example for us today. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 15 and 4. For everything, that would include 2 Chronicles 7, 14. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, that's us, that's the church, that's the New Testament, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul would go on over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and write to young Timothy that all Scripture, that's that in the past, and that's that in the New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, all Scripture is God's God breathed. And then he goes through a list and says it's good for correcting, it's good for teaching, it's good for training, it's good for building up the people of God so they may be thoroughly equipped to do good works. Yes, Second Chronicles 7, 14 was meant for the people of Israel. And so it is good for you and me today. What does it say? There are three observations I've made that I've been praying that God would use in my own life as well as in our life. Here's observation number one. I encourage you to write this one down and look at it later. God delivers this message to a holy people, a distinct people, a, a people separated from everyone else in society. Look at it again. Go back to the verse. If my people, everybody say my people. On this side... The New Testament side, he's referring to the church. In 2 Chronicles, he was referring to Israel, his people that were called out to be a distinct nation, a people of faith, representative even today of you and me. When God says, if my people, as we read it, he's talking about you and me, those who are called by my name, if you have surrendered your life, to the Lord Jesus Christ, you fall in this category of my people. God is saying to the New Testament church today, if we would, what would we do? What does God require of us? We'll get to that in a moment. Look at what Peter says, clarifying for the New Testament that we're a part of this chosen people. In chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Peter, he says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. The Bible clearly teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you were here this past Wednesday night, you would have heard Josh McClellan talking about how no one has done anything righteous. Romans 2, he was going through as he was setting up the stage for his talk. He made it clear that we would all understand that we're born in sin. That means we're born separated from God. But if there's been a time and a place where you understood personally that God sent Jesus from heaven to earth, not because he deserved to die on a cross, but to die on the cross for your sin, 
and you believe that God raised him from the dead, that your sins would be saved. And you confess this to God by, through prayer. The Bible would teach that you're no longer of this world. Instead, you are now a part of my people. When God says, if my people who are called by my name on this side of the cross, he's talking to the church. He's talking to people who've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So just as it was written years ago for the people of Israel, so it is written for the church today. If my people who are called by my name would do what? First observation is it's a distinct people, a holy people. God also delivers a helpful proposition. This is what we see. He proposes something. If you notice before he clarifies who he's writing to, he puts a big if. I circled that in my Bible. To remind me that the proposition that God gives us depends on whether we respond positively to it or not. That's why there's an if there. If my people are called, who are called by my name would do what? He proposes four things. What does he propose? The first one is pride. He deals with pride. He nails it. He hits it head on. Look at what it says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. It's easy when we look at the landscape of the world that America has an issue with pride. And to be quite honest, if we take an honest look at the church, the church has struggled with pride as well. Just as God's people in the old covenant struggle with pride, so is God's people in the new covenant. So much so that in Proverbs 8.13, the Bible literally says God hates pride. Pride is when we shake our fist, if you will, at God and say, we can do it better than you can. We can run our life better than you can. And maybe we don't shake our fists and say that, but we do it by practice all the time if we're not careful. Think about it. How many times did you get up this morning and spend a half hour, hour, or two hours with the Lord and pray before you left? If you get up and just run through your day without spending time with the Lord, you're saying to the Lord, I can do it without you. I can do it better without you. I don't need your power. Trust me, God's been working on me before I share this with you. He's been working on me. I've had to rearrange things as I've worked through this to make sure that I'm walking out of my house filled up with God's power and not Sean's power. For too long, we get up and we go about our business and do what we can do in our own power. As I've been working through this, the Lord's given me kind of a statement just for me to deal with in my own life. And if it speaks to you, please sit before the Lord and deal with him over it. And that is that if we're not careful, we depend too greatly on the gift and not enough on the giver. We often depend too greatly on the gifts and not enough on the giver. God has blessed America above and beyond most nations on the planet. Many would say beyond all nations on the planet. And God has blessed you and me in ways that some people may never experience. And if we're not careful, because of that favor, we can operate based on the gifts God has given us rather than sitting at the feet of the giver and depending on him to give us the strength to exercise the gifts in a way that would honor him that would build people not just for today, but even for eternity. Let me illustrate for you how arrogance is a challenge 
that the American church has to work with. Some time ago, I read a story about a missionary who was over on the other side of the planet where the church doesn't have the resources that we have in the United States. And it just so happens some great folks like you bought a plane ticket for this missionary and some of his family members to come over to the United States to spend a couple of months so that he and his family could learn from churches like us how to be a great influence and impact lots of people when he goes back over into the remote area that he was working. This missionary and his family migrated to the United States for that time and would go with this prominent pastor and then meet this pastor and this pastor and then to the other side of the country and meet this pastor and see exactly how the churches were operating. It was time for this gentleman and his family to fly back to the other side of the world, go back into the jungle, and as the Americans saw it, apply the principles that they would learn here, there, so their church could grow. And after they checked into the airport, this was back when you could actually accompany someone to the gate. They were standing by the gate waiting to go in, and they asked the gentleman, hey, before you depart, tell us one thing, at least just one thing that you learned from the American church that you might apply when you get home. And his response was, I learned that you can do a lot without God's help. For too long, if we're not careful, we've been relying on the gifts and not the giver. I read in a book some time ago about whether or not revival would come back to America or not, Leonard Ravenel, in his book Revival Tarries, says it's not likely to come because the prayer meeting in America is dead. Now please hear me when I read that. I know that our prayer meeting, prayer time on Wednesday night is not necessarily convenient from everybody, and it's not always a full gauge of where we are as a church. However, we do understand when we read about the shape of the church that the prayer meeting can be a reflection of what actually goes on privately in our homes because typically what goes on privately, there's a reflection of it publicly. And you say, what do you mean? Well, those that study the church today would agree with, bless you, would agree with Ravenel that prayer is missing from many of our churches today. So much so, someone illustrated it with a story saying that Sunday morning, we can look at the attendance and we could measure the popularity of our church. Lots of people come on Sunday morning, more so than come on Sunday night. This was back in the day, this illustration, when we used to meet on Sunday night. We used to meet every Sunday for discipleship and then big church. And pastor would usually preach from down there. Well, he would more teach because he might even ask questions. So you had to really pay attention on Sunday night because he might ask you a question about what we were reading or studying. And some would say that back in the day when that was the commitment level that most church folks had, that Sunday mornings where you could measure the popularity of the church because that was the bulk of the people that showed up. And Sunday night, you would measure 
the popularity of your pastor. Because not as many people showed up because as great as the pastor was, he still wasn't quite as cool as the church itself. Because a lot more factored into the Sunday morning attendance, the music, and whether you had the right flavor of coffee, and whether you kept your restroom, all that factored in for the Sunday morning attendance. But Sunday night, most people came back just because of their connection to the pastor. And then they said, if you really want to measure how the church is doing, come on Wednesday night prayer meeting. That'll let you know how popular God is. Because the attendance was much smaller. Because not many people show up just to sit around and pray. We'll come to hear the music, eat the donuts, and drink the coffee on Sunday morning and maybe come back, maybe come back for something a little deeper on Sunday night when we actually communicate back and forth over the scripture. But to come and sit and pray, I'll find something else that would occupy my time. Now, I know that's not a full, fair assessment. That wasn't my illustration. It's one I read because I know on Wednesday night, a lot of people meet in these classrooms and help teach young people about Jesus. But when we look at it as a whole, in the Christian church, even today, we're going to get about Sunday morning. And then after Sunday morning, the commitment begins to wane. For whatever reason, we feel like it's all we need, and we can occupy off of it. In this message, the proposition that God gave is he said, if you will humble yourselves, arrogance can stand in the way. Second thing can stand in the way is lack of prayer. Prayer's an issue. Just open that can just now. Ian Bounds in his book, Power Through Prayer, writes this. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Spirit can use, people of prayer, people mighty in prayer. I'll tell you, I've been so convicted over this passage and just studying over the, uh, I'd been studying this before Bill even asked me to speak this week, about a month and a half ago, I've been reading through this passage of scripture, this place in scripture, and kind of got locked in on the passage, and God just rearranged my schedule. Rearranged my schedule so much that I've increased the time that I spend with him. And I have cut down on the time that I watch TV and other things that I like to do. Not because in and of I think those things are wrong. But because I realize that if God's going to use my life to bring lasting change to those that he allows me to influence. That it will not come from me simply, simply operating out of gifts that he's given. It will only come if I'm drawing power from the giver of those gifts. And it's impossible to draw that power if I'm not sitting at the feet of Jesus. Remember Acts chapter 14? Acts chapter 14 took place just a couple of months after Jesus was raised from the dead. If you go back and you read... Right before Jesus, or when he was being arrested and then he was, uh, before he was crucified, we see that Peter, James, John, we see that all the disciples denied the Lord in some way, shape, or form. Peter did three times out loud. Others just denied him by running away. They were horrified. They were scared. They didn't know what to do. The Lord Jesus was with them for about 40 days after he was raised from the dead. And then the beginning of Acts chapter 1, then 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, and they draw this power from God, and we begin to watch them walk through life, which was about two months since Jesus ascended into heaven. And it was their normal pattern to go to the place of prayer three times a day. So we know that they were sitting at the feet of Jesus. We know that they were drawing power, not based on their gifts 
or even their office as an apostle, but they were drawing power because they were at the feet of the one who gives those gifts and gives that power. And they were meeting with him in such a way that in Acts chapter 4, the same ones that denied the Lord Jesus healed somebody in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 they were they said by what name did you do this and he said by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we are proclaiming the forgiveness of sins and they said you better be quiet you better quit talking like that don't you preach in Jesus name and they would not be quiet but because the guy that had been healed a chapter before was there present they knew that they couldn't put him in jail because it would cause an uproar and then they beat them and sent them on their way, and they continue to preach the gospel. And this is what it says of the religious leaders in chapter 13, verse 4. It says, they notice the courage of these men. Now, these were the ones that had just denied the Lord a couple of months early. They said, we notice the confidence of these men. And then it says, they took note because these men had been with Jesus. Here's the question I think we need to begin to ask ourselves before we get up and go about our day, and even through our day. Based on how we respond to others, would people know that we've been with Jesus? Based on how we respond, especially when it's not easy, as in conflict comes our way, our challenge arises, will people recognize that we have been with Jesus. Unfortunately, if we, we, that means you and me, if we're honest, people might not always recognize that because of our response. Because we're walking in our power and not the power of God because we've not sat at the feet of God. John 13, 35, it says, this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. Because you love one another. That's not possible if we're not sitting at the feet of Jesus. If not, we tend to react when God's calling us to respond and respond in his power. How do we do that? We got to get rid of pride. We got to humble ourselves. We have to pray. We cannot do it apart from spending time with him David, a man after God's own art, in Psalm 5.3 writes, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice, and I lay my request before you. It's in the morning he meets so that he can start his day. It's like gassing the car up before we go on a trip. We gas up with Jesus before we go and represent him. The Lord Jesus, it was his custom. It was his practice. Mark 1 and 35 Jesus got up very early in the morning and went off to a solitary place, a place by himself, a place with no distractions. The cell phone wouldn't go off. This app didn't pop off. No, it was just him. And it said he prayed. If the Son of God needed times with the Father of prayer, how much more do you and me the proposal included pride. It included prayer. He also dealt with their priorities. Look at the verse again. If you humble yourselves, if you pray, if you seek my face, the church today, if we, if we would confess, if we would admit 
If we're not careful, we have a priority problem. We'll put anything in the place above God, sometimes not meaning to. Sometimes we'll choose good instead of best. And you say, what do you mean? This morning I got a call and asked if I would teach an 830 Sunday school class for one of our teachers that was sick. So I, I, I stepped in. I'd been reading through Philippians for a while. So I felt very comfortable with the material that they were working on. And in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Paul puts a prayer in there. I believe it's verses um, uh, 9 through 11 where he puts that prayer. And he talks about how he prayed that their love would abound more and more. And he says he wants it to grow so much that they would be able to discern things that maybe they once couldn't discern. But if, if their love would really grow, if they'd sit at the feet of Jesus, they'd draw power and then grow in their love, talking about experientially grow, not just a knowledge of, yeah, I need to love, but actually putting it into practice. says if you'll do this, you'll be able to discern between what is good and what is best. Sometimes we don't struggle in the church. Now, some people do, and, and it could be me at times, too. We have to pray about this. Sometimes people actually do evil. Even Christians, they just get off the boat bad, like, man, wow, they messed up, or I messed up, you messed up. We just, bam. But most of the time, we stay away from that because we know that's just wrong. But Paul says, I pray that you be able to discern between what is good and what is best. Our struggle oftentimes as we're walking with the Lord is not between good and bad. Our struggle is between good and best. But Paul says, I'm praying that you would grow and be able to discern between what is good and what is best. Friend, if we're going to do what is best, it will not be in our own power. We've got to sit at the feet of God and seek his face. Practically speaking, even outside of our times of prayer, that means put him first. That means put him above. All too often we plan our schedules and then we see where God fits in. Can't do it on this day, we got that. Can't do it on this day, we got that. Oh, we can't do that because we got this. No, we put our schedule under the lordship of Christ. And we seek him first, Matthew 6 and 33, and his righteousness. And then we allow him to work all these other things out. And if that says we need to say no to something good, then we say no to something good. Why? Because he's calling us to be people that would be involved in doing what's best because what's good often only lasts for this lifetime. What's best can shake eternity. What's best can change lives not just for today and tomorrow, but it could be the difference between heaven and hell for somebody. As the Lord gives us this helpful proposition, he says pride, prayer, priorities, and lastly practice. Look at this. He says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he's calling us to repent. He's calling us to put into practice something that's used in the scripture over 900 times. I remember listening to Dr. Adrian Rogers, a sermon from years ago. He was speaking on this very topic of repentance. And he said he walked through the Bible and either the word repent, repentance, or the description of it like this where it says turn from their wicked ways was used at least or over 900 times. Why? Because we got to get it right. Repentance is more than just a confession. Repent is when we say, okay, God, I realize I'm doing wrong. And then we allow God to turn us in the right direction. I remember when I was in boot camp, I didn't know how to do the commands when I first got there. I wasn't in ROTC in high school. 
but there was this young guy that was in ROTC. He wasn't really tall. He was kind of a short dude. So our drill sergeants, company commanders, they took this guy and they put him up on a table so that the 100 plus people in my company, we could actually see him. We could see his feet. And then they would give him commands and they would say, you know, right face. And then they'd do about face. And we would watch and go, man, that's pretty cool. And because we were judged very strictly on how we followed these commands, we had to watch him, watch him, watch him. And then we would drill, we would drill, we would drill, and we would do them over and over again. And I learned that if I would take my right foot, put the toe behind my left uh, heel back here, and then swivel, ah, but I was a lot more agile when I was younger, and I would swivel, then I would do a 180-degree turn, and my feet would be just like they're supposed to be so that I wouldn't get dinged by those that were judging how we would march and follow commands. But if you notice what happens with an about face, is we do a 180 degree turn. That's repentance. That's when we say, okay, God, I realize I'm going the wrong way. This is not right. Please help me go the right way. And we submit, we humble ourselves in prayer enough that we submit to the Lord Jesus and we allow him to put us straight so that we can honor God with our lives. We've got to practice the right things. And at this stage, repentance is one that might be lacking. So I said there were three observations. Here's the last observation. And it is the best part of the call to prayer. And that is that God delivers a heavenly promise. There are three parts of this promise. Notice the last part of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If we do these things, he says, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. First, he says he will hear. Friends, I want you to know if you find your place today, if you find yourself today not in the right place, that you're not headed in the right direction, if you will call to God, he will hear you. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us in Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me, God says, call to me, and I will teach you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Friend, if you will call upon God today, he will meet you right where you are and get you headed right where you need to be. He wants to hear from you. Think about that just for a moment. The God of everything. The God who created all that is seen and all that is unseen. The maker of heaven and earth and all that is desires to hear from you. Oh, wow. If we would just respond. If we would just take advantage of this blessing, he would change us from the inside out. And the world around us would begin to change because the church would be changed. The promise includes that he would hear us. Then it says he'll forgive us. I don't know what you're going through in your life or maybe what you've done or what's happened to you, but I do know this. If it is separating you from God, if you will simply just turn it over to him, the Bible says he'll, he'll forgive you. And that forgiveness comes instantaneous and it lasts eternally. 1 John 1, 9 is a promise to the church. It's a promise to the believer if you will confess your sins. He is faithful, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness. That forgiveness is instantaneous and it is eternal. He will change you and rearrange you from the inside out. And lastly, look at this part. God will heal our land. 
Notice what it says there. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their land and I will or, or forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Will God heal America? I'll tell you, He won't if we don't come before Him and do what He's asked us to do. If there's to be healing in this land, don't hear this the wrong way, but I want you to hear it. Notice the context of the verse. If there will be healing in America or any nation, it won't come from the White House. For our city, it won't from the, come from the courthouse. If healing is to take place, it will start and flow out of God's house. When the church, we quit pointing fingers and start to evaluate and allow God to change our own lives. I want to encourage you. In a moment as we go into a brief time of invitation, if God has dealt with you in any area as he has me over the past couple of weeks, I want to encourage you not to leave here without going before the Lord in prayer and leaving whatever it is in this room. And when you walk out, be free. Be released of it. Don't allow the devil to bring it up again, even if he tries Say, my daddy took care of that. The Lord Jesus paid the price that I could be free. You can't hold me back any longer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for our time together. I pray that as we wrap up now in this moment of invitation, if there is a decision that needs to be made from someone who needs Christ, or possibly someone who already knows you to repent, God, I pray that you would speak and that whatever you choose to do, you would be faithful to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So in a moment, we're going to stand. Alex is going to sing. It's not going to be long. It'll be a brief moment. And in that moment, I'm going to encourage you, if you've made a decision today or need to make a decision, that you make it before you leave. If while I was talking about God's people, if you've never surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not sure what would happen if you stepped into eternity today, I'm going to encourage you and some of our staff will be up front to come down here and say, hey, I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that my home is heaven. I, I want to make sure that I'm saved. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to come. In our first service, we observed a couple of baptisms. If you've trusted Christ recently, but you've never followed through in baptism, I would ask you to come. That is your first step as a Christian. It's your first step of obedience. I'd encourage you to come. Let one of these up front know. Say, hey, I need to be baptized, and we'll work on making that happen for you. If you notice, the message really, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, in this context was for the church. If you're a part of the church, and you recognize today that there are some things in your own life that need to change so that God can be number one in your heart and in your home so that he can not only do something in you but through you to bring change to this great land that we call home, I'm going to ask that you would be so bold as to repent that you go before the Lord whether you use the seed or whether you use the author, uh, um, altar as a good old-fashioned altar this morning, I'm going to ask that you go before the Lord and just say, forgive me. Forgive me. Give me the power to move forward. And whatever change you're asking for, be specific with him and know that he will hear, he will forgive, and he will begin healing this land one heart at a time. So stand if you would as we sing and you come as God leads you to come.